Hello, and welcome to Mr. Benson's Extraordinarium. Extraordinary tales from around the globe and throughout history. I'm Dan Benson. If you've ever lived in Sydney, Australia, you'd be aware of the antics of some of the local eccentrics. Arthur Stace, the man responsible for writing the word eternity all over the city's pavements in his beautiful flowing copper plate, is a name that springs immediately to mind. More recent colourful characters native to Sydney include Danny Lim, Never seen without the company of his Chihuahua Pomeranian cross, he is known for the wearing of sandwich boards with various slogans on them and his irrepressible friendly nature. But if you're of a certain age, you may have heard of the exploits, or perhaps even met, one of Sydney's wildest eccentrics, the rebellious, bohemian, free-thinker Beatrice Miles. Born in Ashfield on the 17th of September 1902, she would spend her childhood in the Sydney suburb of St Ives. She was the third surviving child of five, born to William John Miles and Maria Louisa Miles, and her relationship with her father has been described as tempestuous, but thanks to an inheritance from her paternal grandmother, she had an out and enrolled in arts at the University of Sydney. A fierce nationalist, she abandoned her studies after one year, quote, because they did not teach enough Australian stuff, and her patriotism and political engagement was evident from childhood. At the beginning of World War I, when she was just 12, she wore a no-conscription badge to school, and having written an essay about Gallipoli, was most upset that it was marked down quite severely, because instead of describing it as, quote, a wonderful war effort, she told it like she saw it, and described it as, quote, a strategic blunder, and many historians today would agree with that sentiment. Not only was she a critical thinker, highly intelligent, and marching to the beat of her own drum, but she was also quite athletic, Unfortunately, things were about to take a turn for the worst. B had enrolled in medicine, but during her first year, contracted encephalitis lethargica. Her intelligence was unaffected, and she remained a voracious reader for the rest of her life, and would read on average two books per day, but in most other respects, the encephalitis wreaked havoc. Her personality was altered, and she lost her athleticism. But the bohemian lifestyle continued, and this would also get her into trouble. Four decades before the hippie movement, B believed in sexual freedom, scandalous in the early 1920s, and her attitudes towards personal freedoms gave her father sufficient ammunition to have her committed to the Gladesville Hospital for the Insane. This took place in 1923 and she would remain there till 1925 when Smith's Weekly publicised her story and public support led to her release. It was from this point that she really began to make a name for herself. Outrageous, outspoken and disruptive, at one point living in a cave above one of Sydney's beaches. Her inheritance had dried up and at 38 she broke off a long-standing relationship with one Brian Harper. It seems he wanted to get married, and she didn't like men who got married. During the 1950s and 60s, her reputation grew. In almost Dadaist fashion, she would perform acts to gain attention, such as riding around on a man's pushbike in full evening dress, or smoking under signs that said, Gentlemen shall refrain from smoking. 
Despite the inheritance drying up, she had some unusual methods to raise money, including giving recitations from the works of Shakespeare for a small donation, ranging from sixpence to three shillings. Three shillings probably not being such a small donation at the time. But what she seems best known for is her harassment of cab drivers. She was notorious for not paying fares both in taxis and on public transport, but her reputation amongst taxi drivers was such that many refused to pick her up. As a result, she simply hitched a ride by jumping onto the running boards and, as they disappeared as a feature, she would jump onto the bumper bar or the bonnet. But sometimes she did pay. In one instance, she paid a £600 fare to take a taxi to Perth and back. The trip would take 19 days. On another occasion, she interrupted the Christmas lunch of another driver and went to Broken Hill via Melbourne. The fare was £73 and 10 shillings. But her interactions with taxi drivers didn't always work out favourably for the driver. In one notable incident, she reportedly ripped a taxi door off its hinges. This resulted in a stint in prison. Her notoriety was such that it would see a portrait of her by Alex Robertson entered for the Archibald Prize in 1961. But Miles would find some semblance of stability in her later years, spending nine years at the Little Sisters of the Poor aged home in Randwick, where she became best known for her compassion. She would comfort the sick and she would sit with the dying so that they didn't have to die alone. And despite being a staunch atheist, she would even pray with them. When asked about this, she is quoted as saying, I don't believe in God, but she does. A lifelong heavy smoker, B. Miles died from an unspecified form of cancer on the 3rd of December 1973, aged 71. To some she was a lovable rat bag, to others a total nuisance, but I think everyone could agree, someone who led an extraordinarily uncompromising life. In an earlier episode, I told the story of Mark DeFriest, a.k.a. the Florida Houdini, who made seven successful prison escapes in ways that can only be described as ingenious. However, I hadn't intended him to be the subject. I stumbled across DeFriest on the hunt for information about another escape artist that lingered in the dark recesses of my memory. Someone, who I had a vague recollection escaped prison using a bowl of soup. That may sound improbable, but when Japanese man Yoshi Shiratori escaped from the imposing walls of Abashari prison, the only person to ever do so, that was what he used. Bowls of traditional miso soup. But let's get a bit of background first. Born on the 31st of July 1907, there is little information about his childhood, but he is said to have been uneducated, which may explain the path that he took. What we do know is that as a young man, he took up work in a tofu shop and then became a crab fisherman, but dreamt of a better life, and without an education, that left limited opportunities. Of the opportunities available, he chose gambling and petty crime, and eventually when a robbery went wrong resulting in a death, he was tried for murder. He maintained he was innocent for the remainder of his life, and perhaps he was. Nonetheless, he was found guilty, and while awaiting sentencing, he was held at Amori Prison. 
This would be the beginning of his legend status and renown as a Japanese anti-hero. Amori was a brutal and savage prison, and so when he was given his bucket of wash water one day and found a small scrap piece of wire in the bottom, the cogs began turning. He hid the wire on his person and waited for an opportunity. In his life as a petty criminal, he had picked up the skill of lockpicking, and so now he studied the guard's patrol and chose his time. It was surprisingly straightforward, and Shiratori found himself a free man in no time flat. But not for long. He was recaptured three days later, attempting to steal hospital supplies. I might mention that this was taking place during the Second World War, and stealing hospital supplies was particularly frowned upon, and so he was sent to Akita Prison, and this time he escaped through a skylight. Possessed of an unusual ability to climb, he shimmied up the incredibly smooth walls to inspect the skylight and was delighted to discover that it had been poorly maintained. The screws holding the bars on were rusted and so each night for around three months he did the supposedly impossible and scaled the cell wall to wiggle the bars until finally they came loose. He was free, again, and made his way to the house of his friend Kobayashi. Kobayashi was a prison guard that Shiratori had come to like and trust and he had hoped Kobayashi could help him get off the hook and when he turned up on the doorstep, Kobayashi welcomed him in. But he had grossly misjudged their relationship, and while Shiratori was on the loo, Kobayashi dobbed him in. His new digs? The infamous Abashari prison. Hemmed in on all sides by unforgiving wilderness, Abashari, like America's Alcatraz, was considered inescapable. There was no skylight, no scrap bits of wire to fashion lockpicking utensils, and among other things, he was manacled, and there was no key. The manacles were only able to be removed by a blacksmith, a process that took two hours once a week so Shiratori could bathe. It was a miserable existence, the only thing in his day to look forward to, his food ration, a steaming bowl of miso soup. Miso soup is, of course, very salty, and so Shiratori began putting the soup on his manacles and around the hatch his food came through. You see, they were made of iron, and I think most of us know that iron rusts and that salt acts as an electrolyte speeding up the oxidation process, and it all happened faster than you might expect. He had been transferred to Abashari in 1943, and on the 26th of August 1944, the shackles and food slot had rusted sufficiently for him to break them. Nobody had really considered that the food slot could be removed in the first place, but even so, the slot was far too small for a man to squeeze through. Except this one guy, as they say. Shiratori, as if purpose-built for escaping prison, had the unusual and extraordinary ability to dislocate his shoulders at will. And so one night during a blackout, don't forget World War II was raging at the time, this ability got him through the food slot and ultimately to freedom, and into the history books as the only inmate to ever escape from Abashari prison. He took to the hills to avoid recapture and spent two years living in a cave, some say an abandoned mine, and spent his time foraging for food, but ultimately decided the coast was clear and it was time to return to society. 
On the way back, he came across a field of tomatoes and began helping himself. He was caught by the farmer, and there was an altercation. And the farmer, well, the farmer came off a little worse for wear. In fact, dead. This saw Shiratori sentenced to death. He was held at Sapporo Prison, and his cell was specifically designed with windows smaller than Shiratori's head, and it had extremely high ceilings, but the guards, going on his previous escapes, clean forgot about the floor, and in an echo of the Miso Soup Escape from Abashari, he used his empty bowl to dig a tunnel. Shiratori would be recaptured a year later in 1948, when he was offered a cigarette by a police officer, and was so moved by the kindness, cigarettes being a luxury in post-war Japan, that he turned himself in. He was retried, and the High Court of Sapporo ruled that the farmer's death was self-defence, and noted that during his escapes he had never injured or killed a guard, and his death sentence was revoked. For the escapes he got 20 years, of which he served 14 years. While he was in prison his wife had passed away, but he was reunited with his daughter. Yoshi Shiratori, one of the world's most extraordinary escape artists, passed away in 1979 of a heart attack, aged 71. You've been listening to Mr. Benson's Extraordinarium. Created, researched and hosted by me, Dan Benson. If you enjoyed the show, hit the subscribe button and continue to join me as I uncover extraordinary stories from around the globe and throughout history. Till next time, peace, love, light. Take care, catch ya.